HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. And welcome to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here with Zoli Zardosht. And I, I, I love when these things happen, when someone introduces you to somebody and you're like, yeah, I trust you enough. And you go meet that person. You're like, thank you for introducing me to that person. So a big shout out to my aunt Silverman, uh, fashionista and candy maker. And she's been on the food scene before. Definitely listen to her episode for introducing me to this one. Um, you are fascinating because you are so stylish and you have such a, a eye for design and that's precipitated by a love for food. Let's talk about your life growing up in the Mideast, moving to London, and then coming here to grace us with wonderful per- Persian cuisine at your Brooklyn pop-ups. Oh, thank you, Michael. Um, it's, um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, welcome. So tell me about Iran. Oof, where do we start? <laughs> I know, that, a, that's a big question to ask. It's a big question. But, you know, when, when you say Persian cuisine, most people don't know exactly where Persia is. But what is the difference between Iran and Persia? Well, I think of Persia as the old name for Iran. And it's got references to when Iran wasn't just Iran. It was a part of the Persian Empire. Um, I definitely think it sounds more exotic. So I like to stick with Persian. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's also a reference to the race. So if you get asked where you're from, rather than saying I'm Iranian, uh, most Iranians will respond with I'm Persian. Um, so, yeah. So having grown up in Iran, mm-hmm. what was daily life like uh, from a food context? Breakfast, lunch, dinner. Are there certain ceremonies that happen? Well, um, I mean, I have to say that I moved out of Iran when I was four years old. But uh, we did go back during summer holidays. 
um, where we'd spend, you know, a couple of months there. And um, the we would basically stuff our faces with food. Um, there, are, I mean, Persian cuisine, I think it's incredible because there's such a huge range of dishes. Um, but the main meal of the day is lunch. Um, so that's where the entire family sits together, mostly around a sofre. Um, and you all eat together. Um, and breakfast is typically quite light. Dinner is also incredibly light. But the main meal is always lunch. And we don't do things like dessert, really. We have pastries, and maybe you have that in the afternoon with a tea. But after your main meal, you usually finish off with something like melons or watermelon or grapes. So let's go back to this sofre, which is kind of like a tablecloth, very ornate, very beautiful. But it is the place where everything is placed upon. Yes. Main entrees in the middle, small dishes of sides and sauces kind of surrounding it. Correct. Is is that a legacy thing? Is that something that's handed down through generations? Does everyone have their own sofre? It's definitely a traditional thing, and you're right. Uh, it, it is a reference to a tablecloth. It's often got a sort of a uh, plastic uh, cover because Free you need to you need up. to be able yeah. to wipe it. Yes. Uh, so you sit around a sofre. Um, a lot of people these days obviously have tables too, but certainly at my grandmother's house, you know, there was the sofre. It's always folded nicely and kept in a clean part of the kitchen and when you're ready to eat somebody always takes a sofre to wherever you know you're going to be sitting down to eat um and you spread it out then the dishes are brought out and placed in the middle um always have fresh herbs um yogurt the grapes or whatever you're going to end the meal with um and the food platters are always placed in the middle um and then all the way around, you have empty plates where people are going to be sitting with their cutlery. Um, the idea being that everybody needs to know that there's more. So you would never get a plate of food put in front of you. That would be incredibly rude. You have to have food in abundance placed in the middle so that you can keep helping yourself. And people do. You know, you have you don't just ever have one plate of food. You have two. You know, I have three sometimes. You just keep going until you're bursting. Yeah, yeah. And, and I've had your food, and I have eaten copious amounts of it, and I can see why it, it's delicious and it, it's Thank addictive. You. Um, and you know, I have a limited amount of knowledge when it comes to Persian cuisine. I know it more from the bread side, you know, uh, lavash and Barbary bread, but and even kandi, you know. Uh, but let's talk about some of the ingredients that make Persian cuisine so unique. Um, maybe let's start with rose water and cardamom and malab. And saffron. And saffron, of course. Yes. That's a big one. That's a huge one. Um, well, rose water, yes. Uh, you know, Persian dishes can be incredibly romantic. Um, and most of the time they have to appeal to not just your eyes and your taste buds, but also smell. That's that's quite an important thing. So a lot of dishes are perfumed with orange blossom or with rose water. Um, there are a lot of distilleries um, in every city in Iran where all sorts of plants and flowers, for instance, are distilled and they each have medicinal qualities. Um, and I have a lot of memories of going to these very regularly with my parents with massive big empty tubs um, and you fill them up and pay by weight. Um so rose water definitely is one of them. Saffron is the main one. And it's quite an amazing one for me because it's obviously expensive. Um, 
But it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, you must have saffron in your food. And it's not something that people are ever stingy about. It's, it's, it's the ingredient of Persian cooking. Um, and I think that we also use it in a different way to the way that everybody else seems to use it. You know, we grind it until it's a fine powder. Um, so my mom often uses coffee grinders, like a tiny little coffee grinder. And you have to have huge amounts of it. Otherwise, you know, the, the, the little um, uh, petals are just going to go round and round. Nothing's going to happen. So, you know, you buy a ton of saffron. You put it in a coffee grinder, usually with a um, little cube of sugar. And you turn it into a powder. And then you just keep this in your fridge. It must be kept in the fridge. Um, and you use it as you go, you know, by dissolving it the tiniest amount in a little bit of warm water. Um, and you use it to perfume stews and rices and make desserts with and all sorts of things. Um, the other spices are black limes. Um, they're very tangy and and kind of mysterious. You know, like they, you put them in stews, you have to pierce them um, and, and you throw them in a stew, like a slow-cooked stew, generally with lamb um, and a lot of vegetables. Uh, and they really just perfume a dish. Yeah, and they're fascinating because they, they usually come or are used when they're dry. And when they rehydrate, they still have that inherent acidity. Yes. They kind of, yeah, like you said, perfume yeah. whatever yeah. dish they're in. Yeah, and they can also be used as tea. My mom looks, you know, she likes to use them as tea. Um, that's another one that's also often ground to a powder um, because it can be more versatile in that way. Um and then there is turmeric. Turmeric is really important. Cardamom and cinnamon are the other two. Um, and cardamom, again, is one that we tend to use ground. You know, whenever I see anybody take a cardamom pod and split it open, and, like, it just seems like such a painful process. I'm, I'm not a Puritan. I, I'm just like, just get the ground. <laughs> you know, I, 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 it's more expensive, yeah. yes, granted, but it's way more effective, and you get so much more perfume out of it. Yeah, and it's spatially efficient to have everything ground. Correct. And I, I love that when you open up your fridge, uh, going back to saffron, you, you often have the saffron already dissolved in water and it's this small little jar yes size of you know like a trial size or a condiment that you get on a plane yes but when you open that up the the, the aroma the smell it just permeates the room yeah because persian saffron is the best yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if anyone needs some persian saffron they can come to you you got a whole bunch ground ready to go no that's a business idea yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you <laughs> let's talk about the Middle Eastern community in London. Um, you know, it, it's a city that is very diverse, has a lot of cultures. I've been out to Edgware yes. and had yes. my halloumi sandwiches when I was vegetarian and working there. Uh, but talk to me about the kind of cultural breadth of cuisines that happen in London. Like you pointed out, um, Middle Eastern food is very popular in London. So, you know, what we like there are things like Mexican food, for instance. Uh, but there is a lot of Middle Eastern uh, food. They tend to be sort of in the center on a, on a street called Edgeware Road. Um, and for me, having... So we left Iran when I was four years old and moved to Dubai, um, UAE. And that's where I was until I was a teenager. And then I went to London. So for me, going to Edgeware Road is sort of like taking me back to Dubai you know it's it's the same you just walk around everybody's from the Middle East you can sit outside the cafes smoke shisha you know have the exact same food as I had like really amazing quality stuff um, 
so that's Edgeware Road and the Arabic community, and there are also a lot of Arabic groceries. Um, we also have a ton of Turkish food in London. So especially where I live in East London, there is a lot of there are a lot of Turks, and there are also a lot of Vietnamese people. So I live off of a street called Kingsland Road, and the entire length of Kingsland Road um, is filled with Vietnamese restaurants, all side by side. A little bit like um, Korea Town is here. Um, and then literally 10 minutes down the road, when you get to Dalston, everything suddenly switches over and it's Turkish. It's, you know, like uh, open fire Turkish restaurants, one after the other, all the way until you get to Stoke Newington. And then it changes and it becomes a little bit hippy-dippy and vegan and, you know, that's got its own thing going. Um, the Persian restaurants in London tend to be in West London um, and they typically make kebabs, the sort of food that, you can't make at home as a Persian because you need to have open fires again. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a huge, oh, and of course, Indian food, you know, Brick Lane. It's, I mean, British people joke that national British, the national British food of um, England is Indian food. Yeah. It's, it's curry, yeah. you know. So that's, that's huge. You know, I, I think of Middle Eastern, and I'm kind of like air quoting this as, as a large umbrella to put a lot of these cuisines under. And obviously, there's a place in London where you can go specifically for Persian cuisine. But you've gone even a step further and kind of redefined what Persian cuisine is to you and what it looks like. Having a design background, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about menswear in a second. Um, what was it about classical Persian cuisine that you wanted to change? Classical Persian food is incredible. You know, when I visit my mom, she starts cooking two weeks before I arrive. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's, but it's slightly torturous. You know, it's, 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 it takes a long time to cook. There are a hundred different ingredients. You know, there are many different stages. Um, considering your, your end result is often something that looks quite humble and wholesome. You know, it involves a lot of different stages. When I started doing Persian food, um, like you say, I just um, left the fashion world. Um, I used to be a menswear designer. And I had an eye for color, let's say. Uh, I'd like to think that I still do. Um, and what really, what I was trying to do was make things a bit simpler. I, I knew that I would often come home, you know, from my fashion jobs that you'd start early in the morning and finish around, you know, six in the evening. And I still want to be able to cook something that was slightly Persian. Um, so I started off by cutting off a lot of the long stages involved. Um, and I kept a lot of the um, methods, but I simplified a little bit. And I wanted to also be able to present the food in a more modern way, you know, with a lot of care for color, for, you know, the way that you plate something. Persians tend to be traditional and possessive. You want to keep the food exactly as is. It's perfect. Why would you change it? Um, and to a certain degree i'm glad of that because this is how the food has stayed as is you know for for hundreds of years but at the same time as somebody that grew up in the middle east and then moved to london as a teenager i was i've always been very influenced by what's around me um and i could see that to most people persian food was just kebabs that's all they knew um so i had this huge desire to take these dishes that we would normally make at home simplify them and present them in a more fresh way and and this is where you know zardosh 
the company got started. So if you were to make cuckoo sabzi for another Persian, yep. would they know what it was by sight or would they know what it was by smell and taste? By all of those. Um, so Persian food can be both very regional. Each region has its own dishes. But there are also a number of dishes that are, you know, cooked, you know, up and down the country. And, and they never change. They're always the same. So kuku sabzi is one of those. Now, let's say it's got barberries in it. You might, you, one person might use a little bit more barberry or, you know, you, you might change the proportions of things a little bit. But it doesn't matter where you go to in Iran. If you say kuku sabzi, people know exactly what you're talking about. Um, and, of course, each person will have, like their, like I said, their own twist on it. Um, and it's the same with a number of other stews. Um, you know, like my, my mom would ring up her friends in the morning, and she'd be like, so what are you going to make today? And, you know, one person would be like, I don't know, I'm thinking of making gorma sabzi. And this person could be from the south of Iran. My mom might be from the north. But everybody knows what you're talking about. Um, well, but, what are we talking about? Kuku sabzi is... Just it's, a green herb frittata? It's essentially a herb frittata, yeah. Uh, with But when we say herbs, we mean a, a ton. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah kilograms green, of herbs. We green. mean it's green. Yeah, it's packed full of herbs. Um, and barberries, which are wild mountain berries. Um, some people like to use walnuts. I do, because I think the crunch is is really nice against the sort of soft pillowiness of the frittata. Um, some people like to fry it. Others bake it, for instance. Um, and you usually have it as a light dinner, you know, alongside some flatbread with some fresh tomatoes and maybe some gherkins and some pickles. So that's that, that would be a typical Persian dinner. Well, you are not the atypical Persian. We're going to take a, <laughs> a quick break and we'll be right back. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlander-Kill, here with Soli Zardosh, and we were talking about her modern take on Persian cuisine. Now, in 2009, you started a pop-up in East London, which now has a permanent home in Cafe Oto, and currently you're running it from afar with your sister. Talk to me about what that pop-up, why, why you even wanted to do that in the first place, and how you have been able to kind of let it proliferate while you're in the U.S.? 
I was naive. <laughs> <laughs> I had a love for food and I was frustrated that nobody knew what Persian food was. And like I said, people thought Persian food was kebab. Um, and I had a passion for it and I really thought that I could do something with this. I live in, in the east of London re- near a brilliant market called Broadway. And I had friends who had a stall you know, who had stalls on Broadway Market, and they were great supporters of my cooking because they'd been over to dinner. Um, at the time, I, wor- I worked full-time in fashion, and I had this naive idea that I would be able to start a market stand uh, selling food every single Saturday at Broadway Market um, alongside having a full-time fashion job. Um, and looking back, I, I, I can't believe I thought this would be a possibility because once I got into food and I left the fashion world, food completely took over my life um and it started off with cooking at home one day a week then it was like well this is silly i should i should be doing this you know doing more prep work let's let's do it over two days and then it was three days and four days so it started with this market stand on saturdays and then we moved off um a couple of years later uh i moved to a cafe called cafe auto which is um home to incredible music and a very iconic place in london um, and we've been in partnership ever since. Um, so that again started with just one day a week and then it became two days a week and now it's every single day. We serve lunch there. Um, I started off also, I must say, the business on my own um, and with a fashion background. And some years later, my younger sister finished her business degree and immediately moved to London and joined the business new too. So yes, we now run the business together and... I live in New York because I came here, fell in love in my second week here when I was on a long trip, you know, with the love of my life and ended up getting married. Um, And now my sister is running the cafe while I'm running the business side of things. And I answer emails and do accounts and all of the more sort of tedious sides um, from here. And I must say, I'm so grateful to iPhones and to FaceTime because if it wasn't for that, I don't know how we'd be able to make things work. We FaceTime daily, we text, we email, we have cooking sessions over FaceTime. We, we do pop-ups in London and sometimes we have to, you know, uh, finalize a menu and we're, we're working it out. And I have my laptop sitting in the kitchen. She has her laptop in her own kitchen and we get the exact same quantities and start together. And four hours later, the lamb comes out of the oven. We both taste it and, you know, this is how we work. I actually want to see that synchronous uh, pop-up exist, you know, and have it actually going live streamed at the same time. That's an amazing yeah, idea. We, we should yeah. certainly, I, yes. I would love to partake. I've, I've had the honor of being in the kitchen with you and seeing how your food is made and how it is plated. And it is kind of a feast for the eyes as well as all the other senses. And, you. you know, you did. You screwed yourself by opening this up because now people expect saffron chicken. They expect these dishes yes. every day. So. Yes, yes, they do. They do. And, and, and these are, you know, as much as I try to simplify things, I don't know if I simplified enough, <laughs> you know. And they still involve a lot of stages. Yeah. Um, you may have made it seem more simple, but it's much more complex for your life. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But talk to me about some of the dishes that you kind of constructed for the cafe and how they're different versus what you cook and eat at home. So, like you said, the saffron orange chicken is one we can't let go of. It started off at the market, um, and every single Saturday we'd have customers coming to us from 
all over London um, because they had to have their fix. Uh, we then started doing catering because the Saturday wasn't enough. They wanted to be able to have it during the week. So some people would turn up with Tupperware and they would buy enough to last them for two or three other meals during the week. Um, we started to teach people how they could freeze the dish as well and, and, and defrost it. And, you know, uh, so this is a dish that we always have at Cafe Otto. We also always have um, very beautiful, uh, huge platters of seasonal salads. Um, and when I say salads, I don't mean just lettuce and, and leaves. You know, there's a lot of attention that's um, that goes into each dish. They're, they're really lovingly made. You know, the, the colors have to work together and the flavors have to work together. And every single ingredient has to be separately spiced and dressed before it all goes on one platter. So you get these different layers um, of of flavor coming through as you eat um there we always have one vegetable based dish and uh one meat dish apart from the sovereign orange chicken um and you know this is not a traditional kitchen because i don't have a cooking background and neither does my sister we go to a market uh that's near us every single day and we pick up ingredients and we take it back to the cafe and we we make things with with what we have um so there it's a it's an ever-changing menu you know the 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 kind of components kind of remain you know you always have hummus or you have soup or you have the stews the slow cooked stews um and you have like a rice dish, but they change just depending on whatever ingredients are available to us. Let's talk about the ubiquitous tadig, which is one of my favorite rice dishes of all time. Mine and too. I got to see you do the infamous flip. And that's the scariest <laughs> part of making a tadig, which is a crispy bottomed. Yes. Ends up being a crispy top when mm-hmm. it's inverted um, rice dish. But I had never seen anyone build in flavors the way you did. While it is steaming, and then you mix it in before you actually flip it, talk to me about how you can personalize your tadig. Well, um, so like you said, tadig is the crispy part of the rice. Um, the secret to getting making a good tadig, I think, is that it needs to be cooked on a very low flame for a long length of time. Um, and, you know, it's, it's essentially plain rice to begin with. Um, some people like to put a lot of herbs in it, and that's where you end up with sabzi polo. Um, sometimes you've got barberries in there. Sometimes you can have herbs or barberries in there. Uh, sometimes it's just saffron because, you know, that stands fine on its own. Um, you, we can have, you can have sour cherry rice. There are so many different possibilities with Persian rices. Um, I'm sure that the way that I'm making it is probably not the traditional method. And if my mom was standing right next to me, she'd probably say, mm, are you sure you should be doing it like this? But I'm okay with that. Um, so, for instance, one thing that Persians do with sabzi polo, the herb rice, is they put all the herbs in. You know, So first you boil the rice, you rinse it, you boil it, you um, drain it, you put it back in the pan with all the stuff that goes at the bottom that makes it addig. In my case, I like to use egg yolk and uh and rice and yogurt and turmeric and saffron. So I line the bottom of the pan with this, and then you pile up all the other, all the rest of the rice on top. Now most Persians for herb rice will mix in all the herbs at this stage. So the rice at the end is very flavorful, but it's a dull green. What I like to do is have do this in two stages. I put in all the herbs half of the herbs at the start, and once the rice is cooked, about three or four hours later, um, I 
mix in all the rest of the herb. And then, like you said, the big flip happens, and every single time, this gives me a heart attack. Yeah. You, you were a witness yeah, to this. But it's worth it because it's not rice as a side dish; it's rice as a centerpiece. As a central piece, yes. And you put that down in the middle of the sofre, and people are ecstatic. Correct. Yeah, and in Iran, you know, people fight over this. You know, I, I grew up with two sisters, and um, every time my mom would bring tadik to the table. You know, like we, we were, we were watching the other person to see who's going to take the biggest piece. <laughs> so yeah, it's a dish that can certainly bring people together, but can also create war. You know, let, let, let's talk about the non-war aspects of Middle Eastern cuisine right now, <laughs> <laughs> because th- there are these amazing communal, uh, family-style sharing things that happen. And I have been to some of your pop-ups, and I implore anyone. Who can to go to Z-A-R-D-O-S-H-T dot C-O dot U-K to see what you're up to, but hopefully attend one of your meals because the, the, the sense of community that comes out of not just sharing food, sharing your food and sharing your story is, is powerful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yes, I definitely plan to have more of these pop-ups coming up in New York City. Um, so, yes, do, do take a look at the website. The information should be up there. I'm very excited to bring Persian food, or at least my version of Persian food, my Persian version, <laughs> to New York City. Um, so that's that's definitely going to happen. And yes, like you say, it's it's food that's meant to be placed in the middle, and you're meant to just go for it. And and th- this this is not um, pretentious food. It's humble, but I, if you execute it in the right way, it's it, you know you you can get some wows out of it. Yeah. Certainly. Well, I've had many wows out of your food, and I just can't wait to eat more and learn more from you. And everyone else should do the same. So whether you're in London or Brooklyn or wherever you're doing your pop-up around the world, people should stop by and see solely. Thank you so much for Thank being you, here. Michael. It was an honor to have you in the kitchen. Thank you. You've been listening to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.